It's Tuesday, November 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. More great vaccine news this week, as Moderna has said that their vaccine candidate appears to be 94.5% effective against COVID-19. The other good news is that this one can be stored at standard refrigerator temperatures for a month before being used, which will make it easier to ship and store. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for more. Next, COVID cases are surging in the US and Europe, and as a result, we are seeing a new wave of lockdowns. But officials are struggling to identify where people are getting infected. Most people are being infected at home, but because contact tracing efforts are pretty much a failure right now, it is hard to trace where the infections are originating. Matthew Dalton, Paris correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how it's still difficult to pinpoint how everyone keeps getting sick. Finally, winter is coming and it's time to start thinking about stocking your pantry to avoid any panic buying later on. And because of the uncertainty, you should think like a survivalist when it comes to shopping. Take inventory of what you need, plan how you will store your supplies, and think of shelf-stable foods and canned goods. Tim McWelch, survival expert and contributor to Outdoor Life, joins us with tips on building a pantry that will last. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The vaccine that we're talking about and vaccines to come are really the light at the end of the tunnel. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. Some more really good news on the vaccine front. Last week, we heard from Pfizer. This week, we're hearing from Moderna. They're out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And their vaccine candidate, they're saying, is 94.5% effective against COVID-19. Really great news. So, Karen, help us run down what we're learning about the Moderna vaccine now. Right. So they're both based on the same technology, actually. So they're they're very similar vaccines. Moderna can be given at a doesn't have to be kept quite as frozen. So it may be a little more practical to give, especially in rural places. But essentially, they're, they're very similar vaccines and they're both showing incredible effectiveness. Uh, now, these two vaccines, as you mentioned, they're both using mRNA, which is something that we've never approved before in a vaccine. This is pretty new technology, and this would be the first thing, if approved, first pair of vaccines that are using this type of technology. How does that work exactly? So it basically uses the body's own system. We make mRNAs all the time. This trains our body to make a protein that is found on the surface of the virus that causes covid and once our body is used to see, sees this virus, it's trained to, to see this protein, it attacks it, and we mount an immune response. Let's talk a little bit more about the effectiveness. So Pfizer had about 44,000 people enrolled in their clinical trial. Moderna, they had about 30,000 people. And this is also a two-shot protocol. What are we learning about how many people came down with the virus after going through the shots? Right. So the way they set these trials up, is they vaccinate a bunch of people and then wait until they get sick. Unfortunately, because we have so much virus circulating in the U.S. right now, it hasn't taken that long to get a lot of people sick. In both cases, I think Pfizer had 94 people who fell ill and Moderna had 95. Out of Moderna's 95, only five of them had been in the vaccine arm of the trial, while the rest had gotten a placebo. So if 90 out of 95 get a placebo, get get it and, and got the placebo and only five in the vaccine arm, get it, you can statistically conclude, uh, at least at this point, that it's 90, almost 95% effective. 
this vaccine more so than Pfizer was involved with Operation Warp Speed. I mean, this was being done in conjunction with the U.S. government. Tell us a little bit about that relationship. Right. The government has been working for years with Moderna to develop this mRNA platform, this means of, of making vaccines quickly for exactly this purpose, because we don't know, God forbid, what's coming next out of the woods somewhere. You know, we, we tend to, these viruses tend to come from animals and we can't predict what's coming next. So the idea was to create a vaccine that could be deployed quickly in a circumstance like this. And they still have a few more hoops to go through. They are going to file for the emergency use authorization, obviously. But, you know, there's hurdles with regards to production and a couple of other things as well. Pfizer in particular is likely to go through those very quickly. They have to pass manufacturing. They have to prove that they can manufacture this vaccine safely and at scale. Pfizer has said they will have that done by this week. They're also waiting for safety data, which is not expected to be a problem. But they had to wait until two months until half the people in the trial at least had got had gone two months after their second infection. If you're going to have a bad reaction to a vaccine, that's very likely to come within the first six weeks of getting the vaccine. So the federal government asked them to wait eight weeks to make sure that there weren't problems, mysterious problems cropping up. At this point, they haven't seen anything. But these vaccines do have some consequences. You're going to probably feel lousy for a day or two after getting them. Muscle pains you know, a little fever, tired, like you have the flu for a day or two. And finally, tell us a little bit about the storage of this, because you mentioned that, uh, you know, when we're talking about the Pfizer, it has to be sold at a really, really cold temperatures. This can be stored at more standard refrigerator temperatures for up to a month, so it could last longer. So shipping might be a little easier with this. And then how many doses are we looking at to be available right away? Both of these, as you said, require two shots in my arm to be protected. The Pfizer vaccine is given three weeks apart. The Moderna vaccine is given four weeks apart. And yes, the Pfizer vaccine needs to be so cold. I think a colleague discovered that rubber shatters at the temperature of dry ice, which is the temperature this has to be kept at. In terms of distribution, Pfizer says that they can have 50 million doses by the end of this calendar year. Moderna estimates about 20 million. Both expect hundreds of millions of doses available next year. We'll see what happens. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It means at-risk Idahoans should self-isolate. It means all Idahoans are encouraged to telework whenever possible and feasible. It means masks continue to be required at long-term care facilities. Joining us now is Matthew Dalton. Paris correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about one of the big unknowns with COVID-19. We're seeing surges across the world, really, here in the United States. We're breaking records of uh, daily infections again. We're seeing hospitalization rates go up. And one of the biggest lingering questions that everybody kind of has is, where are people getting this? We're starting to get a, a better of idea of where a lot of the transmission is happening. Unfortunately, it's it's in people's homes. But beyond that, contact tracing efforts have not been going very well. And, and it's just tough to really figure out exactly where people are contracting the virus. So, Matthew, tell us a little bit more about this. Officials across the Western world and uh, Europe and the United States are largely in the dark about where people are catching the virus. We sort of know as a general matter that you catch the virus in poorly ventilated, 
closed spaces where a lot of people are gathered. Not wearing a mask is something that that leaves you much more vulnerable to infection, scientists believe. But beyond that, it's it's unclear more specifically where what kinds of environments are causing transmission to happen, causing this big surge in cases. So is it restaurants? Is it bars? People believe that's likely. Those are settings where you, you're taking your mask off to eat and drink. However, contact tracing systems across the Western world that are supposed to be tracing infections, um, understanding who is infecting whom, have been really um, have been not working well at all, I would say. On the contact tracing side, some of these Asian countries that have been using contact tracing successfully, they're interviewing about 10 or more contacts for each case. And in the United States and a bunch of European countries, we're getting fewer than four contacts. Yeah, I mean, this is a hard disease to do contact tracing for, for several reasons. First, people can transmit the disease when they don't have symptoms, up to, you know, authorities believe two days before people become symptomatic. Um, so that that makes it a challenge. Um, also, it takes a while for symptoms to develop after you have been infected. So if a contact tracer is asking you to think back where you might have been infected, you could be thinking back 10 days and all the places you went in 10 days. And so that kind of method is also not very effective. But nevertheless, um, Asian countries like Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, some extent Japan have been successful in doing it. And it's just, it requires a lot of rigor. It requires a lot of manpower. It requires... Um, a lot of testing capacity um, and and testing results to be available very quickly. And so for, for those reasons, systems in the West aren't picking up a lot of people who are potentially being infected by positive cases when they're doing these contact tracing interviews. One of the reasons for that is I think we're not really understanding how people are potentially contracting the virus in, in situations where you don't know your contacts. So actually in a restaurant, right. if you're not the person at your table, but the, who you know, but the person at the table, maybe five or six feet from you. And if that restaurant is poorly ventilated, if you're in there for a while, you're, you've got your mask down, you're eating. Those are situations where it seems like transmission should be happening. However, a lot of um, contact tracing systems won't consider you a close contact to somebody you know, who's sitting at a table separated from you um, if the table is far enough away. And what's happening now, we're leading to new rounds of lockdowns in France, Germany, and the UK. They're uh, doing some modified lockdowns in on the U.S. side. In New Mexico, they're doing a two-week stay-at-home order. In Oregon, they're doing partial lockdowns of businesses and all. And that's because it's just getting out of control. But restaurants seem to be a key point in that. Uh, you know, I remember having to give my phone number a couple of times at a restaurant if I went to it. You know, some of the restaurants are trying to get these lists going just in case there's an outbreak. But Maybe the word never gets back to them or something. You know, we keep going back to these contact tracing efforts and yeah. just not being able to connect all the dots there. And then you go home yeah. and you infect family members. And then that's where uh, that ends up being a big driver. So it's just really difficult to nail this whole thing down. You know, I think what you said, the phrase you used was connecting all the dots is a good, you know, these cysts, like you have all this information out there, you have your suspicions, but Part of the thing is, is that these are systems that did not exist really before in such large scale before the pandemic began. Um, Asian countries had a bit of a head start, uh, a big head start on the West because they had been previously dealing with outbreaks, um, SARS, 
with the first SARS virus and then the, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus. Um, and both of those things um, were, were big learning moments for, for those countries because they, they had a big impact economically. And so the, the countries kind of got up to, they were better prepared uh, because of that to do contact tracing. And, and they did it, they did it much more successfully. You know, this isn't going to be the last virus. Hopefully it won't be a pandemic, but there, there are going to be more in the future. And, you know, you'd like to think that the West would be better prepared, not to mention, you know, the fact that we're still in the middle of this one. Matthew Dalton, Paris correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's really easy to get caught up in the hype and just run out to the store and use your credit card and just buy up a whole bunch of random stuff. And the, the worst time to do that is if you're hungry. Joining us now is Tim McWelch, survival expert, New York Times bestselling author and contributor to Outdoor Life. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about stocking up your pantry. It's time to make all of these preparations for winter, a very uncertain winter with what's going on with the coronavirus pandemic. Everybody remembers all the panic buying that was going on when the pandemic started. You know, toilet paper was nowhere to be found. <laughs> Obviously, it was one of the big ones. But even beyond that, a lot of food staples we couldn't find as well. So it's time to start preparing so you don't get caught in all of this again. Tim, in your expertise as a survival expert and all, when it's time to shop, it's time to think like a survivalist. So help us out how we should be preparing. The first thing we should be doing is taking inventory and making a plan for what your specific needs are. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's really easy to get caught up in the hype and just run out to the store and use your credit card and just buy up a whole bunch of random stuff. And the, the worst time to do that is if you're hungry, you know, uh, you, you should never shop while you're hungry. And so, you know, people are doing this and, and they're just grabbing stuff and maybe they get lucky and it's some useful things that they actually need. But, Quite often, people end up coming home with a, a bunch of stuff that, that isn't ideal. And so it's really smart to take an inventory of what you've got. And that should include looking at expiration dates. Look at what you've got. Check the dates on it. You know, you want to weigh it a little bit, considering best buy dates and contrasting that with expiration dates. So if something has a best buy date, a lot of times we can push that out months, sometimes even years, depending on what the product is something that's really shelf-stable, like soy sauce, for example. This is a forever food. It never goes bad. Right. You know, there's so much salt in that that it can't possibly decompose any further. And so, yeah, a Best Buy date or an expiration date on soy sauce, who cares? You know, you, you, could, you could use that for the rest of your life if you didn't use it up. But other things that are higher fat content, things that, that have a shorter shelf life, things like nuts, for example. A lot of people will go out and buy a bunch of trail mix and throw it in the cabinet. But all of those whole nuts, whether they're peanuts, almonds, whatever, all of those things are full of fat. And as oxygen gets to them, they go rancid. And so they might not last six or nine months before they're too rank and, and disgusting for anybody to want to eat them. And so it's, it's really important to see what you got and, and then make a plan to get stuff that is usable, stuff that, that your family will actually eat. You know, don't like go to Costco and buy a pallet of pickled pig's feet. Nobody wants that. Get stuff that people are actually going to eat. Yeah, it's got to be something that, that the kids are going to want to do. One of the other huge things is planning how you're going to store it because that's so important for different reasons. Obviously, the space factor. And then you want that stuff that you buy to keep long enough. So you want to keep it dark, keep it cool, keep it dry and away from pests. 
That's exactly right. Think about how decomposition works. So in a warmer environment, stuff breaks down faster. And so the coolest place in your house, maybe it's a basement, you know, maybe it's, it's, a, maybe it's a pantry somewhere. Think about the, the, the coolest and most temperature stable spot you've got and think about using that as your, your basis for uh, not just an emergency pantry, but just for your day-to-day foodstuffs, you know, for, for your staple food items and, and things that you might just want to stock up on when they're on sale. And then light is another thing. So UV light coming in the windows, this does break down food, especially in clear glass jars and, and similar packaging that, that lets light come through. And then pests, you know, if you've got an older home and maybe you get mice in the winter as they try to come in to find warm places to, to hang out for, for the cold season, think about putting out some mouse traps and, and maybe even some mouse poison if you don't have pets or small children that would get into that in the home. And that's going to that's gonna make sure that the food is there and, and ready for you and not, you know, turning into some kind of mouse colony. Tim, tell me about the types of foods we should be getting. Obviously, dry goods, planning about one pound of dry goods per person per day. Obviously, you want canned foods and, you know, you want to think long term with all of this stuff. But we're looking at dry goods and things like that. Yeah. So the dry goods are, are a cheap way to feed people if you have the utilities or some kind of alternative way to cook the food. So this is the part that a lot of people get wrong. You know, you might run out and buy, you know, a whole bunch of beans on sale and that's great. You know, beans are, beans are uh, a very important staple food. They do provide a lot of nutrition, but it takes hours to cook them to make them tender. And so people often don't factor that in. In the event that you had an emergency over the winter and your utilities are out. So if you don't have a backup plan to cook these beans, they're pretty much worthless. And so think about quick cooking staple food items. This would be things like potato flakes, couscous. It could be things that, you know, just everyday things that you like, things like white rice. White rice can last forever without going bad if we can keep the oxygen away from it, keep it cool and dark and dry. And so preparation matters. Some some folks really like to focus on ready-to-eat foods, and I think that's a smart facet of the plan. It shouldn't be the entire plan, but it should be part of the plan. So if you've got ready-to-eat food, and quite often canned goods will fit the bill. So canned fruits, canned vegetables, even things like soup and ravioli and chili, all this comes in cans. It's rodent-proof, so the, the mice and, and other pests aren't going to get through that can, and it's, it's going to be long-lasting. And so this is something that we don't have to cook. It'll usually taste better if we do, if it's something that's intended to be a hot meal. But you could eat it just right out of the can without any heating or, or any other preparation. So no-cook or ready-to-eat foods are smart things to consider. And then for you know, a long-term strategy, maybe think about some, some staple foods that are quick cooking and easy to prepare. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to get here. I suggest everybody go and check out Tim's stuff on Outdoor Life and beyond that. He's a New York Times bestseller, survival expert, and contributor to Outdoor Life. Tim McWelsh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.